Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're going to look at Daniel. And I think, bearing in mind that the last episode, we were looking at the life of Ezekiel, and he came to Babylon, that long journey, a thousand miles or whatever, as part of the exile. Uh, do I understand correctly that Daniel similarly uh, ended up in Babylon? Absolutely, though at a slightly different time. One of the things we said in the previous episode was that Ezekiel had been uh, taken with a second batch of exiles. So remember, Babylon was coming against Judah and Jerusalem and exiled people in batches really as a threat to say, look, you know, fall into line, be good boys, or this is going to happen to you. And Ezekiel had been sent into exile with a a second batch. Um, But Daniel had actually been deported with the very first batch of people who'd been sent into exile in 605 BC. Now, we associate Daniel with the lion's den and with the fiery furnace, probably. I'll get on to that. I'm very keen to ask you about that. But let's just remind ourselves then. So who, who was Daniel? What, what, what's his background? Well, he's a young Jewish boy. Um, we don't know very much about him, but it's clear from chapter one that he was educated. He was sort of of high rank, so pretty high up in society. And what Babylon had done had decided to take some of the best, some of the cream, some of the leaders and potential leaders. He's a young man. We're not told exactly how old, but he's probably a teenager at this point. And he and a bunch of other people, three of his friends are named Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, um, but others too have been taken as some of the cream of society to be deported. So he came from some high-ranking family in society in Jerusalem. And finds himself in Babylon all those hundreds of miles away into a completely different culture, presumably. And how did he fit into that new way of life? Well, a very, very different culture. You're suddenly going from the culture of God's people, and this was a godly guy. So someone who is living in line with God's law deported to the court of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon with all its godless and careless ways. But the reason I love Daniel chapter one is because of how it shows us that Daniel and his friends went about fitting into this new culture. And it's really still a good model for us today for even things like taking up a new job at work or moving to a new place. So he's taken to the royal court, and the first thing that the king wants done is he wants them educating in Babylonian ways, in their learning, in their language, in their history, in their culture. And for three years, he's subjected to this. And you know what? Daniel says, sure, that's fine. I can learn about your language, your religion, your literature, your Gods, I know clearly where I stand. This is not going to affect me and my faith in any way. So 
he happily takes it on board. And I think the message from that for us today is, you know, sometimes maybe as Christians, we get rather uppity about things that really are pretty secondary. And, and Daniel says, listen, this is neither here nor there to me. If you want me to learn that, I can learn that. I know what I believe about God and about his people. I don't mind learning what you guys want me to learn. And you said he was educated in the beginning anyway, well-educated in the beginning, so he was probably broadening his horizons to some extent. Yeah, absolutely, and that's probably how he sees it. Um, But then as things move on a, a little, he suddenly finds himself having to eat all the fine palace food. Now, presumably, you know, he's getting working his way up the system a little bit, and uh, suddenly he draws the line. Now, why would he draw the line at food and drink? Well, because the food and drink would have first been offered to the Babylonian gods. And it's now at this point that Daniel decides he needs to draw a line. So listen, there are some things I can go along with, but there are some things I can't. So this food and drink isn't kosher, Mm. as we put it today. Mm -hmm. And so he says no, but even the way he says no is so incredibly wise. So what he actually does, rather than saying, no, I can't do this, is he goes to the guard who's in charge of all these guys and in charge of all their training. And he says, listen, would you please test us for 10 days? Because what I would like to do is, um, I would like to go on a vegetarian diet. Why don't you just see what happens? Give us 10 days. Uh, And we'll see who looks the best. So this is what he does. They allow him to do it. And sure enough, after the 10 days, he and his friends, they they look better. They look healthier. Uh, All the vegetarians out there will be really happy at this point, won't they? And he's really looking fit and healthy. So he has proved the value of what he wants to stand for. So he's learned to discern out in the workplace, as we might put it, where there are things that it's not worth fighting about because they aren't that important and they don't affect your walk with God, but where there are things he has to draw the line and say, no, I can't do that. But even then, he looks for a really wise way. Now, while all this is going on, chapter one tells us that during this whole three-year process, God gave Daniel and his friends incredible wisdom and understanding. And it soon becomes clear to the authorities that Daniel and his friends are pretty smart and are people who really are worth using. It says that the king found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters Mm. in his whole kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean that Daniel got into magic and enchanting. The Mm. magicians and enchanters were, were the court officials, the court advisors. So by Sticking to what he knew of God and his word and living it out, yet looking for a really wise way to live that out, not being confrontational where he didn't need to be, but drawing lines wisely when he knew he needed to, he ended up as the cream floating to the top. Hmm. And to what extent did that lead to even greater influence for him? Well, it really begins to open up the doors because in chapter two, we find the story of King Nebuchadnezzar having a dream. 
Now, you know, we can dismiss dreams and think, oh, it was the curry I had last night or it was what I was thinking about. But in the ancient world, dreams were seen as really important. It really was believed that the gods spoke to you through dreams. And the more important you were in society, the more important that dream was. So for the king of Babylon to get a dream was seen as really important. This is the gods, their gods, Mm. talking to him. So we'd better know what this means so we can know what the gods want us to do. And did the gods know what that dream meant? Well, the gods knew, but his wise men didn't, (laughs) which is what you meant to ask me, I'm sure. (laughs) His wise men, his astrologers, just didn't know what it meant at all. They were completely baffled by it. And the king is absolutely livid. I mean, you did not cross King Nebuchadnezzar. He was one of the fiercest tyrants in the ancient world. And so the king gets so angry that he has all the wise men executed in Babylon. So this decree is going to go out that everyone's going to have to be executed. And of course, Daniel and his friends are now among the wise men. So this looks like it's bad news for Daniel. But what Daniel does is he speaks to the officer, the Bible says, with wisdom and tact. Again, such a wise guy here. Mm. And Daniel prays to God and gets the interpretation of the dream for the king. He's introduced to the king. He interprets what the dream is. And the king is incredibly relieved that at last someone has been able to explain it. This is so fascinating. Had Daniel not shown wisdom in chapter one, had he not just bided his time, had he not won people over by the quality of his life before he started saying, I'm a Hebrew who believes in the living God, he would never have had this opportunity. Perhaps the message for us there is when we go into new situations, very often the wisest way to go in is is simply to live a quality of life in the work you do and the speech you have and the conversations you have about people that is just so different that prepares the ground for that moment when you are able to say, well, actually, uh, I am a Christian and I do think God's given me something to say about this, which is really what Daniel does as he interprets a a vision of a statue Mm -hmm. in chapter two, a statue that's got a head of gold and chest and arms of silver and belly and thighs of bronze and legs of iron and feet and clay. And what he's seeing here, he is seeing into the future. And God starts to bring him revelation of what is to happen. And each of those bits of the statue represented empires to come. The head of gold would be Babylon, that nation that existed then. The chest and the arms made of silver was going to be Medo-Persia that would come next. The belly of bronze would be Greece. And the legs of iron, that iron empire of Rome. So he is seeing ahead (laughs) to what will happen in human history over hundreds of years to come. And that's why some people think, this can't have been written as a prophecy. This was surely written in much later times when they could look back. But it all comes down to, listen, is your God big enough to know the future? And is your God big enough to tell people what that is? So we had a history lesson about the future. That's the first. 
had a history lesson about the future, just as you said. But through it all, through all of this, he's going to have several different visions in these first eight chapters. And all of them will see in different ways these different empires coming. But what he sees more than anything else is there is a kingdom that's greater than any of these. This is not just history. This is not just saying, oh, Babylon will be conquered by Persia and Persia will be conquered by Greece and Greece will be conquered by Rome and Rome will eventually collapse. Because what he sees in this particular vision, for example, is that here's this great statue. And remember, the king has seen this. This is not Daniel making this up. He's telling the king both what he's seen and what it means. And he sees a little rock. He says a rock not cut by human hands that sort of went tap to the statue on its toe. And as he tapped on the statue, the whole statue crumbles. But that's not the end because this little rock that's left as all the remnants of the statue are blown away by the wind. The Bible says this rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and it filled the whole earth. And for the first time, Daniel is seeing here a vision of the kingdom of God. He's seeing that kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And this will continue certainly through that history that he was looking at there right up to the Roman period, though by the end of his book, he's seeing even to the end times, but he's seeing as kingdoms come and kingdoms go, there is a kingdom that will stand forever. And that is the kingdom of God. I've got to ask you, where does that come from? Where does that belief come from? What, what, what was his life like that should lead him to be certain that that's what was uh, ahead? Well, it was clearly revelation from God. But I think it was also the fact that Daniel must have rooted himself well in a knowledge of the scriptures over the years. Because going right back in the scriptures and in the history of Israel, there had been a promise about God's kingdom. It starts in the earliest times, but perhaps becomes clear from the time of King David in particular. When David wants to build a temple for God and he's told, no, you can't build a house for me, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to build a house for you. But a house of descendants, a house of kings. David, they'll never fail to be a ruler from your descendants who will rule over my people. And from that time grew the idea in Judaism that we see coming out again and again in the Old Testament of God will have a king, a messianic king, one who will come in fulfillment of that promise to David, who will be his descendant, yet who will be greater than David ever was, and who will establish God's kingdom, or rather, to be more correct, through whom God will establish his kingdom here on the earth. So revelation from God, but that didn't come in a vacuum. It came, no doubt, out of having studied his scriptures over the years, knowing them well, so that when an opportunity came, he was able to say, this is that. I know what this is about. And he interpreted it in the light of what God had revealed in his word. 
You mentioned his famous friends, um, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Uh, what, what role do they play in, in, in his life and in this story? Well, we get them in chapter three. Um, and in chapter three, the focus moves from Daniel to these three friends because uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is persuaded to build this beautiful gold statue of himself. It's an image of himself. It's very modest because it was <laughs> merely 90 feet high, nine <laughs> feet wide and, and made of gold. So again, we see what sort of guy this was. Um, and, and all the cronies around him who fawned over him all the time managed to convince him that he should build this statue and that at a certain point when all the musical instruments were sounded, absolutely everyone had to fall down and worship this image of gold. In other words, they were saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are God. And of course, everybody does this because everybody's really keen on preserving their life. And no matter what they thought inside, well, let's just bow and nod and say, yes, it will soon pass. But there were some of the king's advisors who were clearly jealous about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And they denounced these three friends. They went to the king and said, listen, you know, almighty, wonderful king, did you not say that we were all to fall down and worship your image when the music sounded? Well, you know, there are some Jews around here, those three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who've paid absolutely no attention to you at all and who refuse to bear down. Well, the king's obviously furious and he calls for them and he he says, you know, you need to bear down. And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego say, no, um, sorry, we serve the living God and we can't bow down to you and worship you as God, whatever the cost. And there's this lovely line in the story where they say, well, if you throw us into the blazing furnace, then the God we serve is able to save us from it and he'll rescue us from your hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know we won't serve you and your gods. And wow, what a powerful statement that is. That was their red line. God will rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we'd rather burn than fall down and worship you. And so Nebuchadnezzar is even more cross than ever now. So he has this furnace uh, heated up. The text says he has it heated seven times more than usual. That was simply a way of saying until it was exceedingly hot. He, he mm. got it to his hottest. Mm. These three guys are thrown into this furnace. It was probably a furnace that was used for either smelting or baking pots or something like that. And these three guys are thrown into the furnace and it's heated up. But as they're thrown into the furnace, something really weird happens because the king leaps up suddenly and says hang on didn't we throw three people into the furnace but i think i can see four walking around and the fourth one looks like well in his words like a son of the gods like like an angel hmm. and nebuchadnezzar then calls them and says shadrach meshach abednego servants of the most high god Come out. It's weird, isn't it? Calling them to come out and he'd just thrown them in. And as they come out, <laughs> he sees 
that the fire had not harmed them at all. The hair on their heads wasn't even singed. Their clothes weren't scorched. And it says there wasn't even a smell of fire on them. And suddenly Nebuchadnezzar realizes that there is a God in heaven, their God, who has protected them. And it's quite a profound impact, clearly, on the king and on the people. Can you explain what went on? Um, very clearly. Uh, the answer is no. Um, who knows exactly what went on? All we know is that God intervened. I mean, fire burns. It's as simple as that. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, a Jew or not a Jew, it burns. But God intervened miraculously, sent this angel, almost certainly the angel of the Lord, though some people think it could have been Jesus. I'm a little bit doubtful of that myself, but it's certainly an angel sent from the Lord to be with them and to protect them. And in fact, we find many times, both in Old Testament and New, stories of angels coming to protect God's people. And it looks like God sent an angel to protect them. The mechanics of how he did it, because he didn't come and quench the fire. The fire's still raging and burning. It's still a furious heat. How did it happen? I don't know. It was a miracle. But what is the underlying point of this story? It was a miracle from the living God. And as a result of that, Actually, King Nebuchadnezzar honours the fact that they've trusted in their God and then issues a degree that anyone of any people or any language who says anything against their God is actually to be cut to pieces. Now, he's not at the point of committing his own life to him yet, but my goodness, he has seen an incredible intervention that shakes him to his boots. That amazing experience with the three friends in the fiery furnace must have had an impact on Daniel's own faith. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, these are three really close friends. So while Daniel is not involved in that story, the very fact it's included in the book of Daniel, I think shows us that that story must have impacted and no doubt encouraged Daniel. Because remember again, you know, the kings of Babylon were not nice people. They were absolute tyrants. They suffered no fool gladly. So I think for Daniel to be serving in the royal court, because he will continue to do this, and to have seen God intervene in such a way must have been an incredible encouragement to his faith. Probably like for us today, when some friend of ours sees some incredible intervention of God, and it just does you good and helps you to stand firm. How did he find himself in a lion's den? Well, for that, we have to turn to chapter six of the story. And there in chapter six, we find that Daniel is now serving under a different king. So he's still in Babylon, but now this is a king called Darius, Darius the Mede. So this is at that point where Babylon is being taken over by Persia. And in chapter 6, King Darius the Mede, the Persian, decrees 
that no one should pray to anyone except the king. Now, how did that come about? Well, it came about again through jealousy. All these other courtiers are really getting jealous of Daniel and the favour with which he's coming into with the kings. He's distinguishing himself among all the administrators and the leaders by, quotes, his exceptional qualities. So there was something about the way that he did his work. What a great encouragement to us there, wherever we are serving God, you know, to distinguish ourselves by the exceptional quality of our work. But they don't like that. <laughs> and that happens today in life as well, doesn't it? And because they couldn't find any sort of corruption in him, they realize that the only way they will be able to get rid of Daniel is something to do with his faith. It, it, they're going to have to find a way in there. And so they come up with this plan of going to the king and saying to him, you know, your wonderful majestyfulness, how great you are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, we believe that you should issue a decree that anyone who prays to any god or any man other than you for the next 30 days should be thrown into the lion's den. Now, they clearly know Daniel is not going to comply. Mm. So their hope is they're going to get rid of him. But there's this great verse in chapter 6, verse 10, where it says, when Daniel learned the decree had been published, what does he do? He went home to his upstairs room and he opened the window and he got down on his knees three times a day, faced towards Jerusalem and prayed. In other words, he makes it really obvious. <laughs> they go running off to the king and say that naughty Daniel hasn't obeyed your word, your majesty. And the king's really sad because this is a guy who has served the kings really well. And so the king says, Daniel, we've no alternative but to throw you into the lion's den. Lions are often kept as sort of royal pets. They often had exquisite animals like monkeys and lions. So these are clearly some of the royal pets in a, in a lion's den. And he throws Daniel in the lion's den. But it's interesting as he throws him in, he says, may your God whom you serve protect you. It's like, I'm bound, I can't do it. This is the law I've made and the law of the Medes and the Persians couldn't be changed. Mm. And now he's stuck with it. And so Daniel's thrown into that den. First thing the next morning, the king hurries to the den and says, Daniel, has your God been able to save you? Interesting, there's that expectation mm. that his God might have done. And Daniel said, yeah, um, God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lion and they haven't hurt me. And they let him out and they discovered there is not a wound upon him. And as a result of that, King Darius then writes a letter to the whole of his empire, again, decreeing that in every part of his kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Now, he's not committed his life to the living God yet. But it's interesting, here is often how God works in people's lives, putting them in circumstances where they have opportunities to take that little step more to get closer to him. And here was another step that was offered to the king. 
Another miracle, just like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And before you ask me, how did it happen? Don't know. Other than God sent an angel who shut the mouths of lions. Anyone who's ever been to a zoo and seen meat thrown to lions will know that they just do not sit there and purr. An incredible miracle because God is protecting this man for the purposes that he has for him. So those of us who are believers, like Daniel, have contacts, have friends, have neighbours, have work colleagues who are watching, who are observing, who are interested in how we're going about our lives. So there's a lesson here, perhaps, from Daniel's life. Absolutely. And I think the lesson is be ready to live your faith out in ways that don't always require you to speak, at least at first. And, you know, one of the things that people often come to the book of Daniel for is it's a great book for the end-time researchers. And the truth is, by the time we get to the end of Daniel, chapter 12, we are getting a little glimpse of the end time. And the man who, in the first half of the book, interprets dreams for others, in the second half of the book, now has dreams interpreted for him, as God shows him revelation, not just of these passing empires, but of that kingdom of God, of what will happen at the end time, particularly of of how there's going to be a resurrection, either to life or to death at the end. But we can quickly run and look for that, whereas so much of the book of Daniel has to do with how believers can live their life in the here and now and how they can make a difference, not by compromising, but by being wise, not always opening their mouth first, but having established something by their life and the quality of their work that then gives them a platform to speak authoritatively into situations, which is exactly what Daniel was able to do. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.